Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, a story from the archives I think you will really enjoy. Let's discuss this classic episode from Dateline, plus surprising updates from the house on Pitch Pine Crescent. And if you want to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. You will see photos of the infamous home, plus the family at the center of this tragic case. Now then, a top-tier episode of Dateline would ideally be hosted by my man, Keith Morrison. I'd happily settle for a Dennis Murphy too, aka the vocal version of a Snuggie. But this particular episode is hosted by Andrea Koenig, who is not usually my favorite narrator. She has a jarring tone and rhythm that sounds more like an enthusiastic real estate agent. I don't know, maybe it's just me. I find that her delivery just doesn't always match the severity of the material she's covering. But this particular story is so incredible that we can get past the wacky Andrea Koenig cadence of it all, maybe even find a creative way to incorporate her realtor vibes in today's story. So allow me to give you the grand tour of 3635 Pitch Pine Crescent in Mississauga, Canada. Located in a very desirable neighborhood, just outside of Toronto, this six-bedroom modern detached home had amenities up the wazoo. Upon entering, you'll see these marvelous vaulted ceilings and tall picture windows. This lovely kitchen is full of natural light and views of the backyard and in-ground swimming pool. This being Ontario, you have a nice two-week season to enjoy it before it turns into a skating rink. As we enter the main floor bathroom, I just have to mention that yes, this is where the first death occurred back in 2009. 
I know, it's a bit unsettling, but I think it's best to focus on the positives of this home. Notice these lovely transitional architecture features, like this gorgeous floating staircase. And unfortunately, I do have to disclose that yes, another body was found at the bottom of these stairs back in 2010. I know. One death is startling enough, not to mention two. And although Toronto real estate is one of the most competitive housing markets in North America, I understand your hesitation with this property. So let's finish our tour upstairs. Ah, here we have one of six spacious bedrooms, and ah, uh, yeah. It's my obligation to divulge that a third body was discovered in this bedroom in 2013. Yes, it's true. Three mysterious deaths in the course of four years all occurred here in this home. Though this house is stunningly beautiful, we can't overlook what happened here anymore. It's time I tell you about the Harrison family, the former residents of 3635 Pitch Pine Crescent. Let's start with William Harrison, or Bill to his friends and family. The talented and handsome Bill Harrison met his future wife, child actress Bridget Harrison, on set while he was working as a costume designer. Bill was 17, Bridget was 16, he was black, she was white, and it was the 1960s. But whatever obstacles they may have encountered, they took them in stride and had a loving, happy marriage. They both also had very successful careers. Bridget became a superintendent, and Bill had a high-paying position at a large Canadian supermarket chain. Unable to have biological children, the couple adopted a baby named Caleb in 1974, and the happy family moved into the splendid home on Pitch Pine Crescent. This was the setting for big family gatherings and holiday parties. Bill came from a large, close-knit family, so nieces and nephews felt like siblings to little Caleb. When it was just the three Harrisons in the house, things could be a little chaotic. Caleb had darker skin, similar to his adoptive father, and he got along great with Bill, but could be a handful for Bridget. She played the role of disciplinarian, and Caleb was a high-energy, rambunctious little boy who often butted heads with his adoptive mother. Luckily, Bill was always there to act as the peacekeeper. Little Caleb Harrison grows up, and at the age of 27, he was working at a place called My Favorite Doll, a shop with a very dated website that ships and sells secondary market dolls, doll stands, Mizzy dolls, and of course, Barbies. Like every kind of Barbie you could imagine, including the Seeing the Sights May Rocha dress doll from the East 59th Weekend in the Poconos collection. And no, I am not kidding. This website is incredible. I'll share a link in today's newsletter. So Caleb worked in the My Favorite Doll warehouse, and a young lady aged 20 named Melissa Merritt worked in the showroom. Melissa and Caleb kindled a workplace relationship. Eventually, they got married and had two children, a boy and a girl. Bill and Bridget Harrison were thrilled to be grandparents. But there was trouble in the marriage between Caleb and Melissa. One night in 2005, Caleb hit Melissa. The cops came to the house and arrested him. He spent three nights in jail. 
After this incident, the couple went their separate ways, and Caleb moved back in with his parents and began splitting custody of his children with Melissa. The separation hit Caleb really hard. Friends say he was increasing his drinking. He could handle beer okay, but hard liquor and Caleb Harrison didn't mix well. One of the conditions of his release was that he wasn't supposed to drink alcohol. A few months after his separation from Melissa, Caleb went to a keg party with some co-workers. He volunteered to be the designated driver, then borrowed his mother's Mercedes and his friends piled in the back. But at the party, Caleb started drinking. A lot. By the end of the night, he was completely inebriated. His friends refused to get in the car with him and decided to walk home, but Caleb insisted on getting behind the wheel. While driving home, he collided with a taxi going about 60 miles per hour, and the taxi driver, Michael Raymond, was killed instantly. Two of his four passengers suffered catastrophic injuries. Caleb, though, walked away with a broken leg and a few minor injuries, but his life would never be the same because his actions would set off a devastating chain reaction. So, in 2005, Caleb was facing manslaughter charges, but justice moved slow in Canada, and his trial didn't get underway until three years after the accident occurred. He was under house arrest the whole time while awaiting trial. Bill and Bridget stepped up helping take care of Caleb's children. Finally, in March of 2009, Caleb was convicted of one count of impaired driving causing death and three counts of impaired driving causing bodily harm. He was sentenced to 18 months. While he was serving time, Bill and Bridget Harrison successfully petitioned for joint custody of his children. Then, one month after his sentencing, the first mysterious death occurred at 3635 Pitch Pine Crescent. On the night of April 16th, 2009, the young Harrison children were at their mother's house and grandmother Bridget had a school board meeting that ran late. She didn't get home from work until after 9 p.m. The house was dark and quiet. Bill was home alone. So it was strange that the bathroom door was locked. Bridget calls for Bill. No answer. She works the bathroom door open to discover Bill on the floor unresponsive. Bridget calls 911, and paramedics pronounce him dead at the scene. An officer also responded to the call because there were some strange circumstances surrounding Bill's death. He had taken off his wedding ring and also removed his crucifix necklace. Plus, his Swiss Army knife had been removed from his pocket. The responding officer had only worked on the force for two years, and despite these strange details, he reported, quote, there appeared to be no foul play, most likely a sudden death. A pathologist would later confirm this. According to Dr. Charles Smith, Bill appeared to die from cardiac arrhythmia. The family was shocked and devastated, Bill Harrison was 64 at the time of his death, but he acted more like a guy in his 30s. He started every day with a smoothie, was very active, worked out, and played basketball at the Y at least a few times a week. 
This was an immense loss to the Harrison clan. Bill had been the strong black role model to his family and community. Everyone loved him. He was into theater, jazz music, Formula One racing. Plus, he volunteered for the Big Brothers program, and he coached Little League. He was that guy. Five days after his death, Bill Harrison was cremated. Family and friends gathered for his service. Caleb was still in prison during his father's sudden passing, and he was a wreck. But in June of 2009, he was released for good behavior after only serving three months of his 18-month sentence. Caleb moved back into the house on Pitch Pine Crescent with his mother, Bridget. A condition of his release was that Caleb could no longer drive, so Bridget would drive him to work and cart around the kids to school and activities. Things between Caleb and Bridget were always a little strained, but now Father Bill was no longer there to play the peacemaker. I know, things are getting pretty tense at Pitch Pine Crescent. But allow me to bring to your attention this lovely finished basement, the perfect spot to showcase your favorite dolls and Barbies, like Sydney 2000 Olympic Pin Collector Barbie, or Earring Magic Ken Doll. Again, both real Barbies you could probably get your hands on at My Favorite Doll. And like these spectacular Barbies, the house on Pitch Pine Crescent has a lot of appeal. But things for the occupants are about to go from bad to worse. Because on April 21st, 2010, another mysterious death occurred. A year and five days after Bill's death. And it started out like any other day. The kids went to school, Caleb went to work, and that afternoon, Caleb's son returned home from school and used his key to get inside the house. And there he discovers the lifeless body of his grandmother, Bridget, at the bottom of the stairs. The scene was just so awful. She was fully laid out on the floor with her head on the bottom steps. Pathologists discovered Bridget had a broken neck, broken ribs, and suffered from bruising and compression around her neck. Based on these injuries, her death was ruled suspicious, which triggered a police inquiry. Caleb Harrison was the first to be interrogated, being one of the last people to see his mother Bridget alive. And also, he had the most to gain from her death inheriting his parents' money and home on Pitch Pine Crescent. But after firming up her time of death, it was clear that Caleb was at work during that window of time. The family pleads with the cops to look into other leads, but they quietly stop investigating the death of Bridget and chalk it all up to a fall down the stairs. Did I mention the stairs were carpeted? Oh, and also, Bridget had been wearing Crocs, some of the most hideous yet slip-resistant shoes known to humankind. Although, I cannot confirm if Bridget was wearing them in sport mode with the heel strap engaged or not, but still, with those circumstances, I don't see how an accidental fall down those stairs could have been fatal. And I think the Canadian Mounties are really icing the puck on these mysterious deaths so far. Caleb is left to pick up the pieces. Despite both his parents dying in the home, he continues to live at Pitch Pine Crescent, and he continues to share custody of his children. Caleb Harrison also meets a new girlfriend online. 
He gets rides to and from work, plus he starts coaching Little League Baseball like his late father, Bill. According to an article in Toronto Life, Caleb confided to friends that he was feeling depressed but not suicidal, doing his best to manage for the sake of his children. That's why what happened next shocked family and friends to their core. On August 23, 2013, a third death took place in the Harrison home. A friendly co-worker of Caleb had a weird feeling when he didn't show up for work that morning, so he decided to swing by the house on Pitch Pine Crescent and knocked on the door. The cleaning lady answered. She said she'd let herself in that morning and didn't think anyone else was home. Caleb's friend asked if he could take a look around, and the two walked up the floating staircase where Bridget Harrison had met her demise three years earlier. Then the two walked down the hall to the bedroom at the very end and opened the door. Caleb Harrison was lying in his bed unresponsive. The paramedics were called. They had been there before, and they pronounced him dead. But right away, it was crystal clear. His death was not from natural causes. This was a homicide. Caleb had bruising around his neck. He clearly died from asphyxiation. It appeared the room had been staged to look like a robbery gone wrong. After a third death at Pitch Pine Crescent, the Royal Mounted Police finally start to take this Harrison family case seriously. Yes, finally, you guys. So grab yourself a Tim Hortons coffee and a jelly donut, you hosers, because we're about to embark on a full-blown Canadian investigation. Let's talk suspects, eh? Who had the means, motive, and opportunity to murder Caleb Harrison? Well, we've got the longtime housekeeper who had her own keys to the Harrison house. And remember, we also have the family of Michael Raymond, the taxi cab driver who was killed by Caleb during the drunk driving accident. Maybe a grieving family member was looking for revenge. But one by one, the pool of possible suspects are eliminated leaving just one prime suspect left, Christopher Fattori. Wait, that name doesn't ring a bell, does it? Ugh, sorry, it's hard to keep everything organized. This Canadian crime story is messier than the time I accidentally dropped my favorite Barbie doll into that maple syrup evaporator. So let me back up and tell you about this whole other sticky drama that involved the Harrisons. It all started eight years before Caleb's death. So again, quick reminder, Caleb Harrison had two children with his wife, Melissa Merritt, until they separated following a domestic dispute in 2005. A few months later, he was arrested for that drunk driving accident that killed a man. And as you could imagine, Melissa was reluctant to share custody with her ex-husband. She petitioned for full custody, saying Caleb was an unfit father and she was concerned about the safety of her children. But Caleb, Bill, and Bridget fought back and were awarded joint custody, despite Caleb being on house arrest while awaiting trial. Melissa was outraged, but at the same time also in the throes of a new love because she began dating a big and tall part-time security guard, full-time Packers fan, named Christopher Fattori. Chris liked to talk smack about Melissa's ex, Caleb, on Facebook. 
Even posting Caleb's photograph, defaced with devil horns and pointed teeth with the caption, quote, give me beer and the keys to mommy's Mercedes, end quote. Chris was even asking for shares and signatures on Facebook to, I guess, help Melissa with her custody battle. Sometimes Melissa would go outside the law and withhold the kids from the Harrisons, which went against their shared custody court order. The tension ratcheted up as Caleb's trial approached. Melissa and her new man, Chris, were banking on getting full custody of the children once Caleb was sentenced to prison. So they were indignant when Bill and Bridget Harrison successfully transferred Caleb's custody rights to them while he served his time. A month later, Bill was dead. And the day after Bill's death was a whirlwind. Bridget headed over to her grandchildren's school to pick them up for her scheduled time with them. She planned on breaking the devastating news that their beloved grandfather had passed away. But when she arrived at the school, the children were already gone. Melissa Merritt and Chris Vittori had packed up all of their belongings and the Harrison children, then skipped town. Bridget was beside herself. Her husband had just died, her son was in jail, and now her grandchildren had disappeared. She contacted the police and told them that yes, even though Melissa was the children's mother, they had been kidnapped by her. Grandmother Bridget successfully petitions for sole custody, but Melissa, her new beau, and the Harrison kids were MIA for seven whole months. Police finally tracked them down a grueling 16-hour drive away in Londonderry, Nova Scotia. Yeah, dude, Melissa assumed a new identity, had dyed her kids' hair, and crossed the Bay of Flippin' Fundy to keep the children away from the Harrisons. But now, Melissa would be the one on trial, being charged with parental abduction. However, coincidentally, the day before Bridget was scheduled to give her victim impact statement to the court... She was found dead at the bottom of the stairs at Pitch Pine Crescent. Five days after Bridget died, Caleb was granted sole custody. Melissa would only be allowed supervised visits, although she still had her hands full because over the past five years, Melissa and Chris Vittori had three more children together and another one on the way. They packed up and moved their family to London, Ontario to start living the good life out in the country. Melissa launched a blog detailing her homesteading lifestyle filled with picture-perfect photos of this wholesome, happy family. Meanwhile, Caleb started to allow Melissa to have unsupervised visits with their children as well. The two Harrison kids would stay with their mom and half-siblings up on the homestead for a week at a time. This arrangement seemed to work out well, for a while anyway. Then, one night, Melissa and Christopher's house caught on fire. Everyone was able to get out of the home safely, but the family lost their pets and their entire life savings. The couple started a GoFundMe campaign, but only reached 10% of their goal. They were in dire financial straits and forced to move back to Mississauga. Shortly after, the goodwill between Melissa and Caleb also broke down, and Caleb no longer granted Melissa unsupervised visits with the children. Their last night together as a blended family 
was August 22, 2013. The next morning, Caleb was found dead in his bedroom. Three suspicious deaths, all coinciding with crucial dates in this acrimonious custody battle between the Harrisons, Melissa Merritt, and Christopher Fattori. Investigators are starting to suspect that Melissa Merritt sent her man Chris Vittori to Pitch Pine Crescent to commit murder, possibly three times. I told you the story was messy, like the time I tried to style my Barbie's hair with maple syrup. Anyway, even before you knew about the eight-year highly contentious custody battle, you still knew something was up with the Harrison's deaths. Well, guess what? The Canadian cops had all these deeds the whole time, and despite the family shouting from the La Cloche mountaintops, they ignored it up until Caleb's death. But now, with all three adult Harrisons out of the picture, Melissa and Chris had full custody of the kids and decided to move back to Nova Scotia. But don't worry, because the police start making moves too. Finally. The cops do a complete 180 and start doing some fairly impressive investigating. Immediately, they tailed Chris and they watch him discard a Tim Hortons coffee cup and collect his DNA. Yeah, this story is Canadian AF. They also deploy an undercover investigator out into the field in a garbage collector uniform. He finds a brand new pair of men's running shoes in Chris and Melissa's waist receptacle, along with a pair of latex gloves. Yeah, you know where this is going. Investigators discovered that the sneakers were purchased the day before Caleb's death at a Walmart. The cops find video surveillance showing Melissa sitting in a car full of kids in the parking lot while Chris Vittori walked in to purchase his murder shoes. They test the running shoes, find dog hair that matches Caleb's dog, and they found DNA from both Chris Vittori and Caleb Harrison on the latex gloves. Oh, and also, Chris's DNA was found under Caleb's fingernails. Booyah, we got him. All right, Mounties, time to flex our Molson muscles and bust down the door like a grizzly bear in a maple shack and arrest Chris Vittori, eh? Eh, not so fast. The cops have plenty to charge Chris with murder, but they need to collect more evidence against Melissa as well. The family had relocated to Nova Scotia at that point, so they work with a team of investigators to pull a clever ruse. They catfish Melissa, you guys. Via email correspondence, posing as a lonely wealthy woman who was looking to help Melissa and her family after they faced so much hardship. Melissa is suspicious at first, but then she starts getting gift cards from this wealthy broad in the mail. Then, Mommy Warbucks offers Melissa and her family tickets and hotel accommodations to an amusement park. They happily take her up on the offer. Melissa and Chris whisk the kids off for a fun family vacay. And while they're gone, investigators swoop in and wire their house with secret recording devices. Of course, they don't expect Chris and Melissa to be talking openly out of the blue about the Harrison murders, especially not in front of the children. So they strategically send emails to Melissa after the children's bedtime. These emails are disguised as victim family reports about the case. But really, it's another fishing expedition with the goal of catching Melissa and Chris on tape. 
They send deets like, we collected DNA from Caleb's crime scene and we're testing it for matches now, prompting Melissa and Chris to incriminate themselves. Finally, in January 2014, the RCPMs roll up to the Fattori residence with an arrest warrant for both Chris and Melissa. They were interrogated in separate rooms. Melissa cried but didn't admit to anything. Chris was a stone wall at first, but then being faced with an overwhelming amount of evidence and the threat of his wife being implicated as well, he admitted to killing Caleb saying at first that he didn't originally plan on killing him. He just wanted to rough him up. He had used Melissa's son's key to sneak into the house on Pitch Pine Crescent in the middle of the night, crept into Caleb's room while he was asleep, and started hitting him with a baseball bat. Caleb was much smaller than Chris, but did his best to fight back. Chris overpowered him and eventually strangled him to death. After a few more hours of interrogation, Chris Vittori also admitted to murdering Bridget Harrison, saying that he went to the house with the guise of delivering a letter to the children, and when Bridget opened the door, he attacked her and strangled her to death. Chris admitted to the two murders, but he said he had nothing to do with killing Bill Harrison. Christopher Fattori also insisted that Melissa Merritt had no knowledge of the murders until after they were committed. After the interrogations, they were scheduled to be transported back to Ontario to await trial. Police first held them together in a hotel room that was bugged. They capture on tape Chris telling Melissa that he confessed to killing Bridget and Caleb. She responds, why did you do that? Chris says he took the rap for her so she would only get accessory after the fact and hopefully get to keep the children. I guess how romantic, but also how very incriminating. The prosecutors play all of the recorded conversations at trial. Melissa and Chris's defense point out that much of these recordings were inaudible. But in the end, the jury found both Melissa Merritt and Chris Vittori guilty for the murder of Caleb Harrison. As for the murder of Bridget Harrison, despite Chris recanting his original confession, his defense arguing that it was coerced after hours of brutal interrogation, a jury still found Chris guilty of Bridget's murder. However, they were hung when it came to Melissa. Chris was brought to trial for second-degree murder charges against Bill Harrison, but there was not sufficient evidence in that case to secure a guilty conviction. In 2018, both Melissa and Chris were sentenced to 25 years to life with no chance of early parole. Okay, okay, but since that original Dateline episode aired back in 2018, Melissa Merritt successfully appealed her conviction for the murder of Caleb Harrison and was granted a retrial. Apparently, there were a bunch of incriminating Google searches on Melissa's computer, like, quote, how long until someone dies from being choked, or, quote, easy ways to kill someone and get away with it, or how to know if your phone is being tapped. So this Google history was dismissed at her first trial because cops didn't obtain the proper search warrant ahead of time. Ugh, really, you guys? So as of this recording, February 2024, Melissa Merritt's new trial is ongoing. We will learn the fate of Melissa soon, but for now, the saga continues. 
a saga filled with bad decisions, human error, and downright sinister acts. This case is filled with so many emotions. You hear all the time parents saying that they would kill for their kids, but rarely do they actually go as far as putting their hands around someone's neck and choking the life out of them. I know, it's a dark one, man. Humans are so imperfect and complex, but at the end of the day, we are in an Andrea Caning Dateline story. So speaking of complex, I totally get why you would want to pass on this particular home on Pitch Pine Crescent, but overall, this neighborhood is hard to beat. So join me next time to tour more homes filled with secrets. My sincerest apologies to Andrea Koenig. I'm sure she's spending tons of time being super offended by my dumb impression of her. Or is she too busy working as a successful NBC correspondent raising her six kids with her hot fighter jet pilot husband? Or is the next season of Ryan Murphy's anthology series Feud going to cover my long-storied rivalry with my professional equal, Andrea Koenig? Stay tuned. And in addition to all the other messy drama on today's show, I could have done a whole other separate podcast episode just on the original, quote, pathologist who performed Bill Harrison's first autopsy. Dr. Charles Smith wasn't even a forensic pathologist. He worked as a pediatric pathologist, a.k.a. his specialty was alive children, not dead adults. Nevertheless, he was the official coroner because no one else wanted the job. And he totally missed that Bill Harrison had bruising on his neck and head, plus a fractured sternum. Oh, and he never visited the scene of the death, but still felt absolute that this man died from natural causes. In addition to Bill's botched autopsy, a review board found that out of Charles Smith's 45 total coroner's reports, 20 of those were dubious. And more than half of those shady reports resulted in criminal convictions. So yeah, a whole lot of yellow snow eaten from the start of this investigation. I am happy to report, though, that the Harrison kids are doing well, being cared for and supported by extended family. But my God, how tangled and torturous was this case. You can let me know your thoughts. Email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Murder 101. Here's a rundown from the show page. In a small Tennessee town, a local serial killer was caught by the most unlikely investigators, 
a group of high school students led by their teacher, Alex Campbell. Throughout the course of one school semester, the class pieced together a 30-year-old mystery and identified the killer behind at least six brutal murders. Shockingly, while the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation publicly agrees with their theory, no charges have been filed against the murderer. While some sleuthing students already have graduated, they, along with a fresh crop of current high schoolers, still want to finish the assignment once and for all. I am finally caught up on current episodes of Murder 101. The pacing can definitely be a little slow, but man, this show is still worth your time. So much of the true crime content we consume crosses that line, sacrificing its humanity for the sake of shocking entertainment. But in Murder 101, you will see the world through these earnest high schoolers' eyes, kids who are not desensitized to the descriptions of death and crime scenes, kids who feel deeply connected to the victims and their families. In addition to their heartfelt approach and impressive work ethic, these students are doing some first-class investigating. Seriously. The Royal Canadian Mounties should take note. These kids could school them. They're definitely schooling me. I have the deepest admiration for the work being done on Murder 101. At the number two spot, we have Cover Up Body Brokers. Here's a synopsis from the show page. For eight years, Megan Hess ran Sunset Mesa Funeral Home in the small town of Montrose, Colorado. She promised clients discounts on normally expensive cremations, a seeming kindness in a town where many are poor. But in the back of the funeral home, Megan's elderly mother, Shirley, was actually dismembering the dead. And then Megan was selling the body parts, heads, torsos, legs, to companies that claim to do medical research. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, Just finished the last two episodes. Everyone in this town is going to need therapy. I can't imagine being in Megan's shoes where seemingly everyone in Montrose went from adoring her to completely despising her. In the final episode, we don't get any shocking new details, but a satisfying closure to cover up body brokers. And at the number one spot, we have Runaway Princesses. Here's a summary from the show page. The wives and daughters of Dubai's ruler live in unbelievable luxury. So why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? The New Yorker staff writer Heidi Blake joins In the Dark's Madeline Barron to tell the story of the royal women who risked everything to flee the brutality of one of the world's most powerful men. Okay, this one started a little slow for me, but after two episodes, I'm completely hooked. The details of what these women had to endure are really hard to hear, but then when you get to the escape plot, dude, it's so exciting. A surprising mix of ragtag characters come together to defy the most powerful family in the world. I'm actually surprised anyone involved in this podcast is still alive and walking free. I'm on the edge of my seat, eager to hear how things turn out for the runaway princesses. Now for my miss of the week. We have Severed Affair. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Wisconsin is no stranger to high-profile cases and horrific murderers, from the notorious Jeffrey Dahmer to the perplexing Ed Gain. 
But on a cold night in February 2022, a new name was added to the list of Wisconsin's worst, Taylor Shabiznis. From the outset, the details of this case shocked even the most hardened detectives and traumatized young rookies. Using Law and Crime Network's gavel-to-gavel coverage, Severed Affair provides an in-depth narrative of the disturbing case. The description of the show should really be sensationalist garbage focusing on repeating the same gory details over and over for shock value. You know how I mentioned that some true crime properties sacrifice humanity for shocking entertainment? Well, you'll find more warmth and compassion for humanity on the surface of the moon than on Severed Affair. Shows like this drag down Wondery as a credible network. So see a severed affair. You're going down my podcast queue trapdoor. Although I'm sure you'll enjoy it, you sick freak. Find out next week if runaway princesses will remain in the number one spot as the series concludes, or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trapdoor. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archives for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. 